0: Welcome to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church in Harvest, Alabama. We invite you into our sanctuary as we dive into God's Word with our pastor, Dr. Al Piringer. Tonight I want to look at uh, Genesis 11. For several months now, I've been digging deep into uh, Genesis, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Because, I mean, it is the book of beginnings, but it is foundational to everything that we believe in. It is foundational to what, everything else that's going on. Uh, in, in Scripture, I mean, er, everything that comes after the first 11 chapters of Genesis, I mean, this is holding it up. And so it's, it's it's of vital importance that we get the gist of what Genesis is saying in order to understand what the rest of Scripture is saying. So let me first touch on some important themes before I read verses 1 through 9 in uh, Genesis 11. Some important themes that we have seen and have been leading up to this point. I mean, number one, God created everything. Things did not just happen by accident. It didn't just all of a sudden appear. No, God spoke, and it happened. Number two, mankind was created in God's image to be his representatives, to manage creation, to be stewards of his creation, and that entailed multiplying and subduing the earth, taking dominion over the earth, and it all started with Adam and Eve. Yes, Adam and Eve were real historical people that God specially created in His image. The third theme is that a spiritual rebel introduced sin into creation by tempting Adam and Eve to rebel against God's commands, which changed the relationship that they had with God, that they had with creation, that they had with one another, um, and and it changed their nature from one of life to one of death and sin. A fourth theme is that sin quickly overtook humanity. I mean, when sin hit, I mean, it hit big. Because the second generation of humanity, you know, the first murder happened. I mean, it just took one generation from Adam and Eve for the first murder to happen. And things actually kept getting worse from there. To the point where the tenth generation of mankind is described as their thoughts and actions are nothing but wicked all the time. And so it leads to God's regret for making man and God sending a flood of judgment upon the earth. But a fifth theme is God already had a plan in place to redeem mankind and to defeat the serpent, the, the one who introduced sin, as well as all of his spiritual descendants. And so God had a chosen line of humanity through whom that he would work and eventually would bring the Messiah. A sixth theme is Noah. Noah, he was still a sinner. I mean, he did get drunk and pass out, but you know, he was given grace by God. He was shown favor by God, and through him a remnant would survive this flood of judgment. They would survive the flood, and then from his descendants, the earth would repopulate. And from one of his descendants, a chosen line would be the line through whom eventually the Messiah would come, and that would be through his uh, son Shem. Uh, A seventh theme is though that there was a cursed line. As much as there was a blessed line and a chosen line, there was a cursed line. And it went through his grandson. It went through his grandson, Canaan. And Canaan's wickedness was great and it would increase. And once Canaan, his descendants, once their sins were kind of filled to the brim, so to speak, they would be the object of God's judgment. And his tool of judgment would be the nation of Israel. But this is kind of where we find ourselves. I'm actually going to close the study of Genesis tonight, and then two weeks from tonight, start something else. But, you know, chapter 10, we didn't... I, 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 the last time we met, I mean, last week was the storm, but the last time we met, I, I alluded to chapter 10, and I hit some highlights of chapter 10 because it's all genealogy. And, and it's what's called the table of of nations, and it indicates how the lines from Noah's three sons, you know, started, you know, where where they went and eventually what what they led to. But before, you know, it, it gives us, chapter 10 gives us kind of a broad perspective over many centuries. But before all these people went to where they eventually ended up at, they needed a bit of a push to continue God's plan of subduing the earth and and multiplying on the face of it. Because the three lines wanted to stick close together. They were told by God, after the flood, spread out, go forth, subdue the earth, multiply, go, spread. But they didn't do that. They wanted to stick together. They wanted to encourage one another more rebellion against God and so in chapter 11 God gave them the push they needed to do what he told them to do to begin with and and so you know they they wanted to stick together well God came up with a plan to spread them out so that they would do what he said subdue the earth take dominion over the earth Not just one little plot of land, but everywhere on the earth. And so in Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9, this is what it reads. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and... of all the earth. So God had to go to some extreme to get them to obey. Of course, you know, not much has changed. Sometimes God's got to go to some extremes to get us to obey. So the flood happened. Noah's three sons, one line was blessed, one line, well, one grandson line would be cursed. But they weren't, none of them, none of the lines were obeying God. In chapter 10, verse 10, it, it talks about one one of Ham's uh, descendants, Nimrod. He was the son of Cush, the son of Ham, the son of Noah. He was a mighty man. He started several kingdoms in the, this land of Shinar. And he it included this area that would eventually be known as Babel or Babel. Um, th- that's the area where after the flood, all of Noah's descendants kind of went that direction now again in chapter 10 it describes kind of the long-term thing of, of what happened how certain descendants ended up in certain places in uh, the known earth at the time it even talks about them having their own languages at the time but that, that's a description of what happened after this incident in chapter 11 but in the immediate aftermath of the flood they made their way. They migrated to this Shinar area, and they hung out at, at Babel, which wasn't called Babel until after this incident. But because the even the Hebrew word for Babel means exactly what it sounds like, Babel. It turned it into a bunch of babbling. That's what they sounded like to one another. At least they were speaking real languages, new languages, but uh, for to everybody else, it was just a bunch babbling but at, immediately after the flood I mean obviously there's three brothers everyone was descending from them so everyone had the same language and everyone were cousins in some way shape or form and so they stuck around with one another and um, even though God had told them to spread out and multiply and fill the earth they didn't want to fill the earth they didn't want to go out and start their own nations they wanted to be together and so they made their home in this area that, you know, Nimrod had started. And so, you know, honestly, it doesn't seem like a whole lot changed after the flood than what was before the flood because it, it sure doesn't take long, it doesn't take many generations for humanity to start rebelling against God again. I mean, it took one generation for the first murder, I mean, it takes one generation for... For after Noah, for the people to say, nah, we really don't want to multiply and fill the earth. We're just going to stick together. Um, humanity just wants to rebel against God's commands. Do whatever they want. And so all, all these groups, they wanted to stay in one place, be one people. They wanted to relish in their joined rebellion against God. And so they kind of declare their independence. Hey, we are going to build a city. And we're going to build a tower. And we are going to make a name for ourselves. Completely forgetting that, you know what, you're supposed to be stewards of God upon this earth. No, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to be mighty. Well, they tried. And they failed. They tried in this area. You know, eventually that area would be Babylon. And eventually it would be destroyed. And and Babel and Babylon throughout Scripture is used as a picture, as a symbol of rebellion, of disobedience, just the opposite of God and God's people. And it all starts here in chapter 11. So they wanted a central place. They wanted to build. They wanted to have a central place for the peoples that would symbolize their unity, would symbolize their power and strength. One city, one tower. They're going to break God's chains off of them. They're just going to break. You know that this rebellion. I mean, that kind of attitude is described all over Scripture. You know, I think of Psalm one or Psalm two actually, where it talks about. You know, let, let, let's just you know, break apart their, their chains from us. Cast away God's cords from us. We want to do our own thing. They, they wanted to rule the roost. They wanted God to know that they thought they ruled the roost. And, and so in the area that they settled in, in this area of Shinar, Babylon, there's not a lot of stone available. And so they created brick. I mean, it's interesting that they, you know, it describes them creating these bricks. Because that area is known, there's no, not a lot of stones there to build stuff with. And so, you know, they, they built, they made the brick from what was there and they waterproofed it. And they, they you know, got it stuck together, they mortared it together. Honestly, for its time, it was a wonder of technological advancement. And they built their cities. Their city. They built their homes, they built their walls, and most importantly, they built the tower. The tower that reaches into heaven. They wanted to empower themselves. Now, more than likely, this was the first ziggurat. What in the world is a ziggurat? It sounds like you need anointment. I got a ziggurat, take anointment. It is just a big tower. Actually, you know, um, one one book describes it this way. I mean, they, they resemble pyramids, but they're they're not like pyramids in function because they don't have an inside. The inside is filled up. I mean, it was filled with dirt. It's just an outside structure, and they would, you know, they, they, on top they would have this area, this little building on the top. They put a bed in there. You know, it would be for the deity, to come down and meet with them. Because, you know, the archaeologists have found lots of ziggurats now. This was the first one, and then, you know, they kind of, after they were dispersed, again, you would think humanity would think, hey, you know what, God just punished us. Maybe we ought to do what God says. No, they say, okay, fine, God is going to disperse us out. We got our own nations now, we got our own languages. Fine, I'm just going to build me another ziggurat. Which they did. There, there's at least 30 that have been found, um, and, and you know it's, they're to all different gods and and things uh, like that. But they were very t- for humans at that time. They were very tall. They were very big, reaching up there. They had that little building on the top. They had a bed in there and a table set up for their deities and 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 things like that. And you know they it. it's, they were, as much as they were trying to reach God, they were also trying to bring God down to their level. They were trying to reach God on their own terms. Look, I don't, it's like, you know what, I don't care how God says for us to approach him. No. We're going to build a ziggurat and he's going to have to come down to us and come down to our level. Which is, you know, they're... So you, God, you come down to our, you come here, you come down to our level, meet us on our terms. People actually think that works, you know. God's got to do what I tell him to do, but it doesn't. Now, the way it's described, it's kind of an ironic twist. It does say that Yahweh does come down to see what they built, but it's not in the sense that they thought it would be, in, in what they were thinking. Because the picture that is given in, in here is that mankind and what he thinks is so big and important is so puny and, and, and pint-sized. It's as if God has to get down on his hands and knees and look real hard to try and see this little tiny building that they made. To the humans, oh, this is gigantic. This is the symbol of our power and might. And God is like, I can barely see it. I need a a magnifying glass to see that puny little thing. Here, mankind thinks, thinks they're giants. We're building a tower, make a name for ourselves. And it's nothing in God's sight. So God gives his assessment of the situation. Well, you know what? As long as they're one people with one language, they're going to continue to rebel. They're going to continue to rebel against my commands. They're not going to go forth and repopulate the earth. Their sin is going to just continue to grow worse, just like it did before. And who knows what other schemes that these humans can come up with to stop obeying the Lord. So honestly, what God did in my estimation, was actually an act of mercy to try and prevent greater sin and to try and prevent humanity from further harming themselves, which they're good at doing. And to force the people to do what he commanded to begin with, he confused their language, forced them to separate from one another and take over different geographic areas of the earth. And so, you know, God, he... Like in Genesis one, God tells His heavenly court what He's doing. Going to confuse their language, disperse them throughout the earth. And it's interesting that that God, uh, you know, involves the heavenly court in this. And what do I mean by the heavenly court? In in verse seven, you know, come, let us go down and there confuse their language. You know, the us thing. It's His heavenly court. He's He's telling his his spiritual underlings, His other creation the spiritual creation this is what i'm going to do to these humans and um and it's interesting why he did that i think now i've mentioned in you know reading this genesis uh, these genesis chapters i've mentioned the name michael heiser before he has some interesting theories about the spiritual realm i mean whether or not you agree with him i mean it's it's on the up and up i mean it's not some weird heretical kind of Stuff, but it's just interesting. And and this passage plays an important part in kind of his theory, and and he references Deuteronomy 32, and which he surmises is a picture of what happened here in Genesis 11. And in Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, it says, "When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind." He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. I'll read a minute from Heiser's Unseen Realm, but what he's saying is Deuteronomy 32 verses 8 and 9 is describing what he did in Genesis 11. He dispersed the people, made them into nations, according to the numbers of the sons of God. According to a, whatever spiritual beings there were, not angels, I mean, there's a whole lot more than there were nations, but he, he gave these nations over to these other spiritual beings. At first, for them to have a stewardship over them, but we'll see in a moment how that went. But this is what Heiser says. Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 describes how Yahweh's dispersal of the nations at at Babel resulted in his disinheriting those nations as his people. This is the Old Testament equivalent of Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 25, a familiar passage where God gave humanity over to their persistent rebellion. The statement in Deuteronomy 39 that the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage, tips us off that that a contrast in affection and ownership is intended. Yahweh, in effect, decided that the people of the world's nations were no longer going to be in relationship to him. He would begin anew. He would enter into covenant relationship with a new people that did not yet exist, Israel. And that's kind of seen through the end of chapter 11, which is the genealogy from Shem to Abraham. God says, you know what? Forget you, humanity. Puts humanity into nations, puts these other spiritual beings over them and says, I'm going to start with a chosen people through whom eventually, guess what? I would bring the nations back to me through the Messiah. God still had his chosen line. He may have said, you know what? I'm dispersing the nations. I am, they're going to do their thing. I am going to choose me a people that I'm going to make a nation, you know, it would start with Abraham. And that's where, you know, you pick up in Genesis 12, his chosen people. Um, You know, it, it might be interesting that the book of Daniel might also allude to this because Michael is, you know, the archangel Michael, is described as the prince of Israel kind of the spiritual being that God put over him for protection. But later on, it, 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 it talks about the prince of Persia, a spiritual being that was preventing an angel from getting to Daniel in a timely manner, spiritual warfare. So that might be an allusion to what's going on here. But, so there were these, again, if Michael Heiser's theory is correct, Other spiritual beings put in charge of these nations, given stewardship over these nations, but then they rebelled. They led the nations astray. Psalm 82, according to Heiser, refers to this leading astray. In verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 82, it says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? That's why, so according to Heiser, God is condemning these spiritual beings. You were given stewardship over these nations, but you are acting unjustly and you're giving partiality to the wicked. And the description goes on from there, but the psalm ends like this in in, in verse 8 Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. And that was God's plan all along, to take back the nations. It starts with him creating one nation, Israel. He starts it with Abraham. And it was from that people that the Messiah would come, Jesus Christ. And it's through his death and resurrection that God would create a people for himself from every nation. But this people would have no national or geographic boundaries. Through his people, the church, God would inherit a humanity from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Just as it says in in, in verse 8 of Psalm 82, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Through Jesus Christ, God is inheriting the nations. You know, well, if you're old like me, you might remember a TV show called The A-Team. And and Hannibal, who is the leader of The A-Team, every single episode would say, I love it when a plan comes together. Well, guess what? God's plan came together. And it all started here in Genesis 1 through 11. Here's why God chose One specific man, pulled one specific man out of the pagans. All the nations were pagans. He picked one man, Abraham. From him, he created a nation. Through that nation, there would be a king who would symbolize a future king. David would come through Abraham. But then one of David's descendants would be the king who would rule over the nations someone from every tribe every tongue that was the plan but you know what the church has a part in that we are part of the work because this king over the nations told us go therefore and make disciples of who every nation go out there and reclaim every nation for God God at first gave up on the nations said you're you're disobedient, you're rebellious, you're sinful I am going to have my plan my special people through whom would come my Messiah And I'm going to reclaim all the world. And we're part of the plan. Jesus started out with 12. And from those 12, I mean in 2,000 years, look at how the church has grown. And consider how much the church could grow if we would do our part. If we would take the work seriously so let's do our part let's conquer the world for Christ not with weapons of you know the earthly kind of weapons we have weapons that are spiritual by which to fight so let's claim the nations for Jesus Christ that was the plan all along Thanks for listening to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at harvest-baptist.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also find info on our children's ministry on Facebook at Harvest Baptist Children's Ministry or on Instagram at KidsQuestHBC. Our student ministries on Facebook at HBC Vertical Student Ministry.